Good morning. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to those who are mothers or are, have the responsibility and opportunity to mother others. It's such a gift to be with you all, especially with the sunshine. Anybody feel like more alive? Anybody get like a vitamin D rush through their body yesterday? Should we start like not scar sh- sharing, but more like sunburn sharing? Anybody become rednecks like me yesterday because you forgot there's a thing called sunscreen? Well, you know, or you're just like, oh, that's good for you. Well, anyways, it is so good to be with you all this morning. Um, if you looked at my schedule last week, you would think that I was, I, and I grew up a massive baseball fan. So Monday night, some of the men got to go to the Mariners game. And while we didn't win, it was a lot of fun hanging out. My son had a three and a half hour baseball game on Wednesday night. I got to hang out with Rob and Connie eating stale peanuts at the Winco complex. And there was baseball last. I, you just think, but I did not grow up loving baseball. So I've had to acquire the taste. It's what you do as mothers and fathers, right? You have to learn to love the things your kids love. But my growing up sport that I loved was basketball. And so the Seattle Supersonics, and I'm not just saying NBA Jam Seattle Supersonics fan, if those, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking like die hard. I had the big, poofy, bright green and yellow Supersonics jacket. It was awesome. And so when I was a kid, we would, we lived in a cul-de-sac and back in the day, those of you may remember this, we used to have the rule that we could play outside and the only rule we had was you had to come home when the street light went on. So go and do whatever you want. Don't get in trouble. Come home when the street light's on. Oh, how I miss those days as a parent. Um, But we would play like all these basketball games and one of them we would play is horse. Anybody remember the rules of horse or pig? For those of you that don't know, here are the rules. Somebody is responsible, they take a shot and if they make it, the person behind them either has to make it or they get a shot and if they make it, they don't get a letter. But if they miss it, they get a letter. And every time you miss one, another letter is added, and the first person to spell horse loses. But if you play the game, you know that there's two words at the last letter that are very, very important. What are those two words? Prove it. Prove it, right? You make that shot, and that person misses, and the the person that misses has a chance to say, hey, I'll either take the shot to prove that I'm not as bad as you think I am, or the person that made it has to prove it to make sure that they can do it. So it's like a half court shot and they huck it in and it's just randomly made. It's, it, they need to show that they have luck, but there's a, there's a prove it. There's a, a, they had to show that what they did in the beginning is actually what was still true after another attempt. What we have today in our passage is one of the most prove it parts of scripture. We, and we're also going to encounter one of the, what I believe to be the most misunderstood characters in all of scripture. He has a moment and that moment becomes his identity and we lose all other moments in his life. And so today we are looking at the story of Thomas. We are in the middle of a passage we're calling witness. We've been in the gospel of John a while And so we're now at the post-resurrection scenes of Jesus. And he's been meeting and interacting with either individuals or groups of people. And these are the people that would become the foundation by which the church is built upon. Without these stories, 
what we believe would not have spread. I mean, these apostles, these first eyewitnesses accounts, so much of what we believed is based on these men and women. So we've seen him interact with Mary on Sunday. She's the first person that would proclaim the gospel to others. Then we see last week, Brandon, uh, Jesus showed up to disciples and he does a similar thing in this story today. So verse 24, let's go through this passage. We see this guy named Thomas, one of the twins. He was not with them the, week, the time that Jesus showed up to the disciples. We don't know why, but in that room, there were only 10 people. We know Judas was gone. He had already uh, betrayed Jesus. Thomas was not there. And so there was only 10 the last time Jesus showed up to the disciples. And at that time, Jesus just miraculously showed up. It says the doors were locked. They didn't know what was going on. And Jesus was among them. And so I want you to imagine for a moment, you are one of a group of like 10 to 12 people. And you've been with each other a lot. You know one another. You joke around. You've, you've seen three years of 24-7 relationships. You're gone and all of a sudden, these 10 other people start telling you they saw a dead person become alive. What would your reaction be? It would be like, seriously, stop pulling my leg, right? Our first reaction would not be, oh, these guys are right. Our first reaction, well, at least my friends. My friends, I would think that they're trying to prank me. I would think that they're trying to pull one over me. But, and so this is what I... I think this is where Thomas is at. And the thing is, they keep on saying it. So when it says in verse 25, they told him, the Greek actually says they kept on telling him. It was a continual reaction. So it's one thing to not believe your friends after they say one thing. But if they keep going, it's like you're going to just say, seriously, guys, stop. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to believe you. And so here's Thomas versus the ten. He's the one that wasn't there. And they are saying that we've seen the Lord. And so what does he say to them? I won't believe it unless I see it. Because what did Jesus do to the, uh, the disciples the first time he appeared? Thomas doesn't just make this up out of nowhere. When, he, when Jesus showed up to the disciples, he said, hey, here's the proof of my love. Remember, what is, what is the cross? The cross is the greatest expression of God's love. If you want to know or if you've ever doubted if God loves you, you don't look to your life. You don't even look to historical facts. You look to the place where Jesus hung in your place for your sins. And so Jesus is coming and saying, hey, you see these? Go ahead. You see where the spear went through my side and blood and water poured out on the cross where the soldier was trying to confirm my death? You see those things, disciples? This is, here's the proof. And so Thomas is like, you know what? If that happened to you, prove it. I want to see it. You said it happened once. I want some of that. I'm not going to believe. I will not believe unless I see, uh, I, I'm able to put my fingers in his hands or place my hand on the wound on his side. His response, in my opinion, is completely legitimate. I, I think he probably says this because they have said it and they're the ones that are, they need to prove it. Thomas isn't making anything up. 
And so I think Thomas gets a bad rap. Because what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. It's split second, right? This one moment, we've now understood this whole person to be in that one moment. He had a Thomas moment, and we now call him Doubting Thomas. Now, there's one other time Thomas is mentioned in the Gospel of John. It's in John chapter 11, verse 16, if you want to look it up later. And here, he in essence says, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to go to the death for you, Jesus. So imagine if that was his moment. We would call him like eager Thomas, right? Or passionate Thomas. Or disciple Thomas. Or apostle Thomas. But here... We call him Doubting Thomas, not even Honest Thomas, not even Questioning Thomas, Doubting Thomas. In essence, all he was doing was asking people to prove it. He was asking for a reason to believe what the disciples were saying. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have and would say the same thing. Now, remember, he's not talking to Jesus yet at this point. He's talking to other believers. He's talking to disciples. He's talking about those who claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And so he's not asking God to prove it. He's asking the church to prove it. I think as a culture, right now, we are in a Thomas moment. Where people are questioning what others have told you to be true. Where people are questioning where they once believed. In the last few years especially, there's been an unbelievable increase in the amount of people that are either doubting or questioning their faith. And ultimately leaving it. Now they may be asking honest questions like Thomas Or many of them are fueled by frustrations. We're going to talk about different categories in a moment. But what we're seeing is a development of these new sociological categories. And you may have heard these before. These are the categories of the nuns and the duns. Now, this is not N-U-N-S. This is not a conversion to Catholicism. This is N-O-N-E-S. Okay? So, let me give you some background. The existence of nuns as a category kind of entered the political consciousness or public consciousness in 2012. The uh, Pew Research Center reported a continuous rise in the percentage of people who believed in God but did not identify with any specific religious tradition. Okay? This is new in the last 10, 15 years. Now, those, they started to categorize as nuns, N-U-N-E-S. So in 2019... Um, Pew found that the portion of the population describing themselves as Christians declined by 12 percentage points in the space of a decade. So 2009 to 2019, 12% of Americans identified as less or not as Christian anymore. While other religions, especially Islam, have grown as a share of the population, the biggest growth occurred among those with no religious affiliation. Now, according to Pew, the nuns grew from 17% around 2009 to 29% in 2019. Okay? 
12%, excuse me. Now, there's a new study in 2012, the CES um, came out and now, millenn- I'm gonna break it down generationally. So millennials, which is my age into about 20, uh, 30-ish. Millennials, now 44% of millennials identify as nuns. They have, they have some belief, but no religious affiliation. Generation Z or Gen Z, which is now the 20-somethings, you're 48.5% of them would identify as nuns. 40, so one in two 20-year-olds would say, yeah, I, I believe this stuff, but I don't know. I don't have any affiliation. Up from, remember, 14 years ago, it was only 12%. Or 17%, excuse me. Now, one in three people or 36% of the total population of Americans would identify themselves as nuns. But there's a category within that. According to the Templeton Foundation, they've identified a distinct group of non-affiliated but formally religious individuals. So these aren't people that just don't describe or connect with any. They w- these are people that once did but now no longer. So of the nuns, there's a subcategory called the duns, D-O-N-E-S. This is a, this is a big uh, religious, a big study, excuse me. The study found that one in five people are saying that they are done with religion. 20% are done. So these are not people that just say, yeah, I believe and don't have anywhere to identify myself with. These are people that are saying, yeah, I once did believe, but now I no longer identify as that way. Now, not every one of these is the same and not all who question or have questions about their their faith will do this. Not all who have a Thomas moment that say prove it will end up at the fullest extent of being done. But this is such a big deal in our society. I would not be surprised if every single one of us knows somebody that would fit into these following categories. I was meeting with a friend um, from college this week. I went to a Bible college um, uh, and we were talking about old friends and I can count on my hand, my one hand, the people that went through a pastoral ministries degree with me. I mean, and it wasn't a large school. I can count on one hand the people that are still in ministry or that are still following Jesus. I mean, it's a rapid increase. But not all are the same category. So what I want to do, and I want to give us some categories to think through this. Because if you have not yet, you will likely experience somebody while living on mission that would count as either, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't fit anywhere, a nun, or a done, like, yeah, I once believed or I went to church when I was a kid, but I'm running away from that as quickly as I can. So three different categories that help me think this through. The first category is what I'll call detoxing. Detoxing. So if you think about detoxing, Imagine somebody's a heroin addict, okay? So they remove themselves from a, a certain situation or a certain environment, and then what's happening is the impurities or the toxins within their body are being shed so that the pureness of their mind and body will be able to flourish, okay? It's the removal of the toxins, of the impurities, to reveal and allow for the pureness of it 
to be revealed. Now, if you think of that as a Thomas moment or those that are asking questions about the faith, what I would say is this is a group of people, a category that are detoxing from the Christian culture, not the Christian faith. You following with you following me? Those that are detoxing are trying to remove the impurities of the of the life of the church so that they can experience a more pure form of the faith. Many of you have been in this, and I would actually say that this is a good thing. If you were raised in the church, you had likely had done some form of this at some point. And by that, I mean you had to make your faith your own. You had to take what was given to you and make it and personalize it. But all of us have experienced things in the church, the big C church, that we don't necessarily like, that we don't agree with. We see things on the news that bother us. I, I went through a pretty significant detoxing of church culture right after my oldest, Judah, was born. So uh, the school that I went to as a pastoral ministries major, it was in the era of the church where people like me that went to degrees like that, we had one trajectory. And that one trajectory was mega church pastor. Biggest influence, biggest stage, biggest volunteers, biggest platform, biggest publishing. I mean, that was my trajectory. That was what I felt called to. That was the environment of it. We were running in circles that that highlighted every church conference that I went to was all about that. Okay. After Judah was born, I, I, and even prior to that, every Christmas we would, I mean, there was one Christmas, we did like 30 Christmas functions, just nuts, nuts. And that was before Christmas day. I remember every, I would go through this mini depression from like December 26th to December 31st. And I would be like, what did I just do? What did we just spend my life and my heart? And like, what did we just accomplish? I'm not saying that things were bad, but I was looking around and just something just didn't seem to fit. I looked at scripture and I read the book of Acts and then I was like, wait a second, what I'm seeing in the scripture and what I'm living and leading, like how do we get here when this is what we were given? And so I started to detox. I started to ask lots of questions. I kind of got a little angry if I was honest with you. I mean, at one point, I, I, I remember telling Darianne, I was like, I'm never going to be paid by the church again. Paid leadership is the problem. And you know when somebody's detoxing, they find like one thing and they harp on it. And that, that's where I was. Oh, that's, that's the problem. We need the, we need the ch- priesthood of all believers. Like big on that stuff. And, and that terrified her. She didn't have the, we didn't have the maturity to be able to say, okay, Justin, let's give it some time. Okay. Yeah. I did not. Okay, so but then I was introduced to the the vision of Soma. I was introduced to the idea of missional communities, the idea of disciple making in everyday life. I was really drawn to the church planting, multiplication of communities, decentralization of mission, like everybody having an encounter with Jesus in your homes. Mind boggling. I'm all over that. How do we get over that? 
And so what happened was I started to have to unlearn. I had to remove some of the impurities so that and and still in process of so that the more pure vision of what God had called me to in this time and place could thrive. Now, that's detoxing culture of of upbringing. Some people go beyond that, though, and, and enter in a new category. And I think that all of us need to do this to some extent. A.J. Swoboda says this, we too often assume that doubts and questions and critiques of one's faith are the same as losing it. Just because you ask questions doesn't mean you're losing everything. This is good. We have, and we in the West, and we in an environment of intense consumerism have some detoxing of church culture to do. We used to call it rechurching, where it's like, okay, you think church is this. Actually, we want you to start seeing church as everyday people in everyday life. You don't go to church, you are the church. You've heard that a lot, right? Well, we want to just, we actually just, missional communities is just taking that to its logical conclusion. Yeah, we believe that so much, we're going to put everything in, as much as we can into our missional communities. You don't go to this. This is not church. We used to say, we hope you never go to church again in your life. Because we want you to start being the church in the midst of everyday life. That's detoxing. That's unlearning. That's removing the impurities to step into the pureness of what it should be. That's one category of people. The second category is what I'll call deconstructing. This is the popular term that most people use, but deconstructing literally means to break apart what has been built. The difference between detoxing and deconstructing in how I'm using the words is deconstructing is you're not just taking apart and having questions around the culture of the church and how you're not like at Thomas saying, okay, brothers and sisters, prove it. You're actually deconstructing the faith itself. It's not just the culture, it's the theology, it's the doctrine, it's the understanding of the role of scripture in our life. You start to say, oh, scripture's not important, I'm going to throw that away. Or you, you start to take apart the, the divinity of Jesus, you start to take apart the cross and atonement, and, you, and deconstructing is when it's taking the theological belief systems that are foundational to our faith. Not secondary issues, not the things that you and I can argue about, that are good to argue about. Those are good things. I'm talking about the fundamentals of the faith. That's deconstructing. And so if there's detoxing and there's deconstructing, the last category is what I'll call departing. Those that just depart, they leave the faith altogether. And this typically happens, in my opinion, the two absolute most fundamental things is the divinity of Jesus They no longer see Jesus as who he says he was, claiming to be God, or denying the physical embodied resurrection of Jesus. Paul actually says, if if we don't have that, then what we believe is we're rubbish. The resurrection is that essential. So departing the faith and the stories of friends I have who have been leaders in the church, pastors, elders that have been trained, that loved Jesus at one point, that no longer profess faith is just heartbreaking. It's so sad. And sometimes those categories are sequential. Sometimes it starts in detox and then it leads towards deconstructing. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
Some of it is because the church has said that we're loving and we're accepting and we're filled with grace. And, the, and people are saying, okay, you, be, you say that, prove it. And then the church doesn't step up. There's been hurt and abuse. I mean, the amount of stories of abuse that are coming out right now in the church is so troubling. Because, and I believe the church is at a reckoning right now. And I'm not saying Soma here. I'm saying the, the big C church, the people of God in our country, in the Western civilization that you and I are all part of in some way. This is a wilderness experience for many, like we've spoken of in renewal, extended periods of disorientation. And so what does it mean to be with people as they are in one of these categories? And I'll even speak to those of you that may identify yourself in one of these categories as you yourself detoxing and just try, like frustrated with how the church does stuff or you've seen this or that in the church or you don't, you, you don't like the way the church has done certain things. I mean, purity culture of the late 90s, early 2000s that I was, and to the mid 2000s, there's a lot of people that are wrestling with that right now, especially. I mean, I, and I, I'll, I remember a, a meeting, uh, it was a, purity night of some sort and it was multiple churches and I was a youth pastor at the time and one of the leaders stood up and said I want everybody that's pure to stand up I'm sitting here like you are either forcing people to lie or you're throwing them in a heap of shame and I'm sitting here like what are you doing right like you've got to be kidding me I didn't say that I should have, I guess. But, you see, but like, there's stuff like that where it's like, you've got to be joking. Like, really, people of God? Like, it makes sense why people end up where they are if you hear stories like that. When I was a, a teenager, I went through a, a pretty significant Thomas moment. There's this passage in Matthew uh, that talks about the unforgivable sin. Anybody know what passage I'm talking about? There's this passage that says to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is the one sin that's unforgivable, okay? Now, let me just start this story by saying, if you're concerned that you've committed that sin, you haven't committed the sin, you're good, okay? You're like, oh, I'm not sure, I don't want to have, that's a sign the Spirit's at work in you, you're good, thumbs up. But I thought, I thought I had one, I remember laying in bed one night and I had this one, I was like, oh, I bet the Spirit can't do that. So this is the thought that entered my mind. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh no. I'm out. <laughs> See, it's funny now, right? But I took it to the extreme. Like, I was like, oh no, I did it. And I remember having these thoughts like, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life if I literally just committed the unforgivable sin? And I was like, well, if I'm out, I want to make sure my friends aren't out. So I'll still be an evangelist type person. I was like, okay. I wish I had somebody to come aside, pull me aside that was older and was like, Justin, it's okay. Like, I, I was kind of figuring out because discipleship wasn't a thing at the time. And I remember somebody pulling me aside. It was a mentor of mine. He was uh, one of the youth, somebody at our church. And I remember telling you about this doubt. And, I, and, I, and it was so significant that, like, I remember I was working at a restaurant up in Seattle. 
and there was this elevator that we would go up and down and it was a really slow elevator. I knew it took 18 seconds because I timed it a lot. And I remember I was like, I have 18 seconds right now. And I curled up in a ball in an elevator all by myself saying, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Like, that's so pathetic, guys. But it was so legit. I was so like, I was so serious. And I sat down across from this mentor of mine. He was a college student at like one of the schools. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Justin, this doubt you're experiencing is a sin. I want to ask you a question. Was that good counsel? How often when people are asking questions that are wrestling through a detox or, or they're even asking really hard questions about the role of scripture. I mean, they may have had a fundamentalist upbringing that literally, like every single word is absolutely 100% literal. There's no imagination, there's no hyperbole. It's like you have to take everything like word for word seriously rather than allowing the way the author was inspired by the spirit, even if it's hyperbolic, even if it's imagination, Even if it's prophetic, that doesn't make sense. Like, oh, you have to take this absolutely seriously. They could be deconstructing from that. That's not how scripture is to be read. And so here here I am listening to this. And I, I wrestle with the question, like, has the church done a good job with those that are in these categories? What and if you are in that, what what is necessary for you? And for those of us that will disciple people in that, what do we do? How do we address this? So I want to speak first to those who are doubting, to those that may be detoxing or deconstructing. You're having a Thomas moment. I first want to say welcome to the table. Welcome to the table. Because at this table, Jesus is present with us. I love looking at the Psalms. I love, I'm, I'm trying to read two psalms a day right now and just sitting in the psalms. And I love the honesty of it. And because the psalms aren't like, this is how you are to believe. The psalms are not, this is how you are to feel. Some of the psalms are just describing where that person was at that moment. And a lot of times they're just saying, God, where are you? Just honest, raw. Not sugar-coated, just one-on-one with God. And so for those that are in one of these, welcome to the table. This is a place and this is a group of people that we get to wrestle with this stuff together. Whether it's recognizing that these are impurities that we're like, yeah, you know, that is wrong. And not just wagging fingers at those guys that do that, but asking the question, how can we be a different people? Like not trying to throw others under the bus, but we want to be a people that are that are pure in our faith in Jesus as best as we can with what we know right now. So welcome. But our hope is that you come to the place where where Thomas does in this passage, because Thomas doesn't stop like it. The story doesn't end with him saying, prove it, because what happens in the story? Well, uh, verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again. Eight days later is a expression for the next Sunday. So when you see, when it says eight days later, he's saying the following Sunday. So think of this Sundays. Who, where has Jesus shown up so far? Mary, 
Sunday, first day of the week. What's the first day of the week mean? New creation, new, new week, new life. When does he show up to the disciples? Sunday, first day of the week. When is he showing up to Thomas? First day of the week. He's saying, hey, what you're longing for, all the brokenness that you identify, it's starting to come untrue. The resurrection now births something new. And so what happens is Jesus says, he shows up out of nowhere. He says, Shalom. And then after addressing everybody, he looks right at Thomas. And he addresses Thomas. And he says, hey, put your finger here. Where would, is he asking him to put his finger? In the very place that is a fullness of the expression of God's love. You're doubting. You're having a moment. You want me to prove it. And Jesus comes up to him and say, you know what? I got this. Let me show you my love. You want, you want more? Here's my side. God, Thomas gets an interaction with Jesus that reveals Jesus' love for him personally. This is not for the group. This was for Thomas. And my prayer for anybody that's either detoxing or deconstructing or tempted to depart or have departed, my heart for you is that you get that type of an interaction with Jesus. And then you respond in the same way that Thomas responds. And what is that response? My Lord and my God. We're about to we'll sing a song in a few minutes that sing these words, Adonai Elohim. These are, the, these are the very words of God. Thomas recognizes the divinity of Jesus here. He's not saying, oh, you're a good guy worth following that's got some good advice. What Thomas is saying here is, you're actually the Lord creator of heaven and earth, and I'm going to lay my life down for you. And then what does Thomas do? What's the rest of his story? Because he's no longer identified by that in history. Thomas goes on, according to traditional accounts, the Apostle Thomas landed on the Kerala coast of India in AD 52 and was martyred for his faith, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in India in AD 72. For 20 years of his life, he tra- and if you look at a map, the travel that it took to get him to that could have lost his life in that alone. But he laid down his life to the, because he recognized and he encountered Jesus. And he says, this is true. More people need to know about this. And he became the apostle to, of India where to this day, the St. Thomas Christians of India would identify and trace their lineage all the way back to the apostle Thomas. Go ahead. We don't get Justin Kurovaka without this. Yeah. But you see this? He doubted. He had a moment. He encountered. And then he was radically changed. My hope is for anybody that's in those moments, that same thing by God's grace happens to you. That you get to experience life and life to the full. And quickly, for those that are sitting with those that are in doubt. Because this passage directly speaks to us. What does Jesus say? You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Has anybody here seen the resurrected Jesus? Not yet? 
you are blessed. Think about that. Thomas needed a prove it moment of a physical Jesus. You and I have not yet had that. And what does Jesus say of us? You are blessed. For you to have the faith that you have, whether it's the size of a mustard seed or it's the size of a mountain, the faith that you have that's been awakened in your heart by God himself, you are blessed by that. So what do you do with that blessing? What do you do to sit with people that are either detoxing or deconstructing? 1 Corinthians 8 says this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. What do we do with the blessing of our faith? We don't allow knowledge to puff us up. We don't come across as an, what I'll call arrogant certainty. Here's somebody doubting and the first response is, let me give you 10 answers why that's wrong. We don't, we don't come across as arrogant, certain people. Are we certain? Absolutely. Please. I don't, don't, I'm not encouraging you to doubt. What I'm saying is, what do you do with those that are? Not arrogant certainty, but we just have humble faith. Our posture is actually, in my opinion, as important as what you want to say in that moment. Does that mean that we don't need truth? No, people need answers. People need that. We need to be theological. We need to be wrestling. But sometimes in the midst of doubts in that moment, what people don't need is the words as much as the presence. The delivery of truth often determines the acceptance of truth. So do you just say, oh, you're in sin? Is doubt an effect of sin? Yeah. Are we in a sinful world that still has effects on our world? Absolutely. And yet, that our posture is to be one of what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love. Presence. Being with people. How did Jesus show his love for us? Death. Died for us. A few quotes. Henry Nouwen says, getting answers to my questions is not the goal of the spiritual life. Living in the presence of God is the greater call. Oswald Chambers says, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. And A.J. Swoboda, he's got a great book called After Doubt, says the struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign we actually have one. That's not saying departing. That's saying wrestling with. We are all have had and interact with people that have Thomas moments. It's not our identity. It's, it's I'm not doubting Justin because I cried up in a little ball in an elevator. I am now son of God. Not the son of God, a son of God. I'm no... I'm no no longer identified by the detoxing of getting rid of the impurities. I'm now identified because of what Jesus has done for me. And the same is true of you. And that's why we go to the table. The table is our weekly reminder of what Jesus has done for you and I.
Because remember, what was Thomas saying? Hey, prove it. How did Jesus prove it? By physically giving him his body and giving him the fullest expression of his love. When we go to the table, we're being reminded of Jesus' expression of his love for us. Every week we take communion. We're communing with God in some amazing way by taking this bread, taking the wine or juice, the bread symbolizing his body broken, the juice and wine symbolizing his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And what we're doing when we take that is we're saying, I believe that.